This is Gigawaters, the latest podcast series from Energy Voice Out Loud in paid partnership with Orsted. We are leading the global energy conversation and in this episode we will be discussing the knock-on effect for Scotland's hydrogen sector of the inevitable boom in offshore wind. Scores of turbines will be installed in Scottish waters in the coming years, facilitated by the Scotwind leasing round. Green energy will be in abundance, meaning much of it will be used to produce renewable, low-carbon hydrogen that will power swathes of the economy. I'm Hamish Penman, a digital journalist at Energy Voice, and I'm delighted to be joined for this episode by my co-host Rob Dunkarf, Head of UK, US and Strategic Projects in Orsted's Hydrogen Arm, and Martin Tullock, Head of Energy System Integration at the Net Zero Technology Centre, an Aberdeen organisation working to advance solutions to tackle the obstacles of the energy transition. First of all, Ben set out for us last week. Ben Sykes from Orsted very nicely what the uh, the opportunity from Scotland is for Scotland's offshore wind sector. Rob, kind of following on to that, what are the opportunities for the hydrogen sector from the opportunities for the offshore wind sector? So as you mentioned, I'm Rob Dunkarf. I'm in Orsted's renewable hydrogen business and I look after our activities in the UK and the US. Even by Orsted standards, I think I have one of the, a long job title. But we, uh, we at Orsted, we've been growing a renewable hydrogen business over the last couple of years, and we've got a, a pipeline of in excess of three gigawatts of projects that we're looking to deploy, primarily at the moment in Northern Europe. Building on that and coming into the UK is, is sort of our core focus. Uh, in response to your exact question about the opportunity in Scotland, the reason Orsted's interested in renewable hydrogen is that Obviously, the feedstock for that is renewable electricity. Orsted's the world's leading offshore wind developer. And we see that there are huge synergies, both in terms of the experience we've had to date in driving the cost out and deployment of the new technology of offshore wind, but also in then utilising that existing footprint that we have to develop renewable hydrogen. And Scotland's at the forefront of that for us. You know, The Scotland leasing round is going to deliver a significant amount of new offshore wind volume. And that really gives a huge opportunity for Scotland to then leverage that offshore wind capacity to build out new renewable or green hydrogen projects and build that into their plans for a hydrogen economy. And Martin, where do you see the big opportunities for Scotland of this uh, inevitable Russian renewable hydrogen stemming from the Russian offshore wind? Uh, well, firstly, Hamish, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's great to represent the Net Zero Technology Centre. We are funded by both UK and Scottish government and we work in partnership with industry to develop the technologies that are going to be essential to drive a cost-effective energy transition. In terms of hydrogen, I see huge opportunities in operation, in storage, in exporting hydrogen to areas of high demand, um, a particularly good match with oil and gas skill set. So really excited to explore some of those in the next 30 minutes. Excellent. Thanks for that, Martin. And looking at the hydrogen industry, it is a, a fuel that's already used, um, grey hydrogen specifically, but this renewable hydrogen, it's, it's a kind of a fledgling sector that's um, really kind of starting to gather pace. What benefits are there for Scotland of being an early mover in that? Yeah, exactly. Today, grey hydrogen or fossil derived hydrogen is used extensively in industry. It was actually quite prominent in the news relatively recently where um, CF Industries in, in the northeast of England shut down their facility with the very high gas prices and stopped producing CO2, which it turns out is essential uh, in uh, the animal slaughter value chain and, and various uh, fizzy drinks and various other uses. Um, and it sort of got some media attention. But before that, I think hydrogen and particularly fossil-derived hydrogen 
had been something that sort of flew under the radar, but is it has been enormously important in, in heavy industry today. Moving forward with the Net Zero Challenge, the UK and all other markets, building on the recent COP26 ambition and, and previously Paris and, and the other agreements, are going to have to find a way to decarbonize that activity. So you're going to have this, this huge volume of, of current grey hydrogen consumption that needs to be replaced. You're also going to have other sectors that need to be decarbonized. And for most, that'll be electrification. But then you'll have hard to abate sectors where hydrogen can be used in lieu of other uh, energy vectors today. And that presents both sort of a, a huge opportunity for Scotland in the near term, because clearly you have big industrial clusters like Rangemouth who are consuming hydrogen uh, in large volumes today. But you also then have new opportunities like transport, e-fuels for Scotland to capture and to use it to decarbonise its own sector. But I think a real prize and opportunity for the Scottish economy is that because of the the huge renewable energy resource that Scotland has, it can look to export that renewable hydrogen to other markets to to meet those needs as well. And that's where you know there'll be an opportunity for skilled and semi-skilled jobs and also economic benefit of that export potential. Sure, and we'll come on to that export point in kind of in more detail a wee bit later on. But but Martin, does Scotland already have a bit of an advantage to become an early mover given its oil and gas credentials? That's a really good point, Hamish. I think there's huge transferability of skills and expertise between oil and gas and the, the new hydrogen sector. Um, there's a really good report by RGU published earlier this year by Paul Deleuze's team that really highlighted the transferability of skills, everything from technician skills all the way up to the engineering and project management skill set. I think also our experience of dealing with what is a safety-critical gas is going to be crucial as we move into the hydrogen industry. Definitely. And, and just from the technology point of view, where does where does kind of Scotland rank in developing the technology that's going to be needed for to create this hydrogen, the electrolyzers and, and, and things like that, Martin? Yeah, we're looking at green hydrogen. There's two things that you need. You need a, a low-cost source of green electricity, and you also need to be able to produce cost-effective electrolysis equipment. So I think it's fair to say that we are at the very early stage of, of this nascent industry. There's no established electrolyzer manufacturer in Scotland. I think that is a huge gap and also a huge opportunity. We at the Net Zero Technology Centre, our sole remit is to try and encourage technology development to help, help the industry transition. So that is something we're focusing on. We've got a number of projects looking at um, potentially disruptive technologies, so we're just kicking off a project in partnership with the University of St Andrews, looking at a more efficient, um, higher temperature, higher pressure electrolysis technology. And then that's just one example of, of a pipeline of projects that we're, we're developing at the NZTC. So I think we do need to look at that, but it's also quite easy to overlook some of the ancillary opportunities. So things like water desalination, again, we're investing in technology in that space to try and make that more efficient and less costly. And also the real huge opportunity in, in the short term is looking at the fixed and floating wind installations that are going to be required to provide that low-cost green electricity. Sure, and, and Rob Orsted's bid in Scotland is a, is a floating bid. I presume work is going on to look at that kind of desalination issue and also just to, if you could kind of talk to us a wee bit about the, the cost of hydrogen because Martin mentioned there that it requires a, lo a low-cost energy source and, and obviously offshore wind prices are coming down. Orsted submitted... Uh, a number of bids into the Scotland leasing round, both uh, fixed bottom, floating and hybrid, and also uh, some on a 100% owned basis and some with some partners in a consortium. 
And that was a strategic decision taken to sort of give us flexibility to meet the needs of Scottish government and Crown Estate Scotland's desire coming out of the Scotland leasing round. In terms of how that plays across to, to hydrogen, there's sort of at the moment, as you say, renewable hydrogen is a nascent industry. And ultimately, the view is that there will be a choice between offshore hydrogen production. And then within that subset, you have the choice of sort of centralized offshore production where you'd have uh, one big electrolyzer located in the center of the wind farm and all of the cables running to it and it drawing seawater and producing hydrogen. Or alternatively, you could have decentralized production where you had an electrolyzer unit located in each of the wind turbines. And there are pros and cons of each. Uh, There's also then the option, which is the current suite of projects today is mostly based around onshore electrolysis, where you, regardless of of the electricity source, the electrolyzer is located terrestrially and is producing hydrogen uh, onshore. You know, it's a very interesting area and there'll be lots of technology developments. Orsted's involved in a project uh, in the Humber in Grimsby uh, called Oyster with Siemens Gamesa and ITM Power looking at testing the marinization of an electrolyzer technology and the integration to an offshore wind turbine. And you're right that ultimately, if you were to locate that technology offshore, you'd be taking seawater, desalinating it and producing the hydrogen. The beauty of the development regime in the UK is that the lead time for the current sort of Scotland leasing projects is going to be delivery closer to 2030 once you've sort of done the permitting and the consenting regime in the UK allows you to retain that flexibility about technical optimization until relatively late. And so there's no need to make any firm choices today about the sizing of the electrolyzer, the location. You need to allow for it within your consent envelopes and within your project planning and, and Orsted, and I'm sure any of our competitors will be doing that. And then we're able to see how the market evolves in terms of the demand for the hydrogen the cost of offshore production versus onshore production and the, the counterfactual costs. So where does market price go? How do cables come out in pricing versus pipelines and that sort of thing? And then lastly, on your points around the pricing of, of the feedstock. So Martin put it very well, which is the price of, of the renewable electricity is, is the single biggest cost component of a, a molecule of hydrogen. And you need to access the the lowest cost electricity. Renewables in general, and particularly offshore wind, are coming down in cost rapidly. But also offshore wind offers a higher load factor than the comparable electricity sources, such as onshore or solar. Um, And therefore, you can get a higher utilization rate out of your electrolyzer and reduce your levelized cost of hydrogen. So that again, there's an optimization ex- exercise to go through on any given project, but frankly, also for the market as we start to deploy these projects and learn more about them. Sure, and looking at the kind of uh, export potential now, because Scotland is likely, if everything goes to plan, going to produce more green hydrogen than it than it needs. What why does um, hydrogen specifically have such a kind of a, an export advantage over just exporting electricity? Um, Rob, let's come to you first on that. In a sense, or in a way rather, it's it's linked to the fact that we have a lot of experience in particular, and Martin mentioned it earlier, Scotland in particular has a lot of experience of transporting gas. There's a lot of infrastructure that's already there in terms of transport of natural gas, much more so than there is interconnectors for electricity. Uh, there is an option, of course, to transfer that energy via interconnector, and that will continue to be the case. And and that's valuable and and is there for system security on the electricity grid. 
But hydrogen is a little bit of a game changer in that sense because it allows you to store the energy for a period of time uh, as hydrogen or as a, a derivative of hydrogen. In particular, ammonia is is one very potentially valuable vector for storing the hydrogen. It's much more energy dense. It's cheaper to transport. It can be shipped more easily. Equally, you might be making e-fuels like e-kerosene or e-methanol with a biogenic source of carbon. And again, they can be transported. And, and really then you reduce the cost because you increase the energy density of transporting that energy. But also you're utilizing existing infrastructure, whether that's existing pipelines, whether it's ships that already transport ammonia or anything else that's currently in the value chain. And so there's an opportunity to leverage that and to move that energy in an efficient manner. Sure, and there's a kind of plans going on up at Cromarty Firth at the the port of Nig at the moment, looking at a big power to X facility there. That seems like a, a very exciting project that could certainly uh, aid Scotland's hydrogen exports or fuel exports. Martin, from your point of view, I know that Net Zero Technology Centre are engaged in studies with the likes of the Scottish government into the export market. Where, where do you kind of see this huge potential being from from your stance? Yeah, I was hugely encouraged to see in the Scottish government's hydrogen strategy that are prepared, the, the three scenarios. And the one that most excites me is the export scenario where we produce, I think, 126 terawatt hours of hydrogen per year in, in Scotland and export 94 terawatt hours of that, mostly to Europe. Um, so I see huge potential there. We undertook a piece of work for Scottish Enterprise this year and looked at potential green hydrogen production sites around Scotland. So everything from Hunterston through Arnish, through Flotta, Sullenvo, Cromarty Firth, St Fergus, even down to Forth Ports infrastructure in, in the Firth of Forth. And all those sites have got great offshore wind resource, close proximity, good potential to produce low-cost hydrogen. And the, the secret to me is how do we get that to where the, the sources of demand are? And a lot of the demand will be in, in um, Northwest Europe. So ports like Rotterdam, for example, have got plans to import huge quantities of green hydrogen post-2030. And a, a really exciting project that we're just kicking off with Scottish government support and in partnership with industry is something we call the Offshore Hydrogen Backbone Project. So looking at repurposing some of the existing offshore gas infrastructure for hydrogen export and also looking at marine transport options in the short term. So ammonia, as Rob mentioned, Ailowich Sea is another option, potentially liquefied hydrogen. Um, and also looking at the, the need to build new hydrogen infrastructure as well as part of an integrated grid and making sure all that ties into the onshore backbone project that's been developed by network infrastructure operators across Europe. Sure, and just stay with you, Martin, for a minute on that um, that export angle how big are chances this for for oil and gas workers, specifically those that are that are used to handling the gas element of this? It seems like a really exciting opportunity for them to to transition in the coming the coming years as as North Sea production begins to kind of tail off. Absolutely, if you look at the predicted footprint of a, a green or a blue hydrogen production site, that there's a lot of pipe work there, there's a lot of process equipment, a lot of electrical instrumentation kit. So very similar to the sort of process equipment that we've got four plus decades of experience of designing and maintaining in, in the northeast of Scotland. So there, there's huge transferability. And the one point I would make is that it's going to be a, an international competition. There, there's a lot of sites around, a lot of locations around the world, Chile, for example, the Middle East, Australia, North Africa, that have got great potential for producing low-cost green hydrogen. And we as a country are going to have to compete and cooperate where we need to with um, some of the international competition and potential partnership opportunities. Excellent. Thank you very much for that, Mike. We're just going to take a, a short break now and we'll return in a couple of minutes.
Orsted is one of the world's largest renewable energy companies and in 2021 was ranked the most sustainable energy company in the world for the third consecutive year. With more than 30 years of experience, we are the global leader in offshore wind, with 7.6 gigawatts already installed across Europe, the USA and Asia-Pacific. But we're just getting started and hope to invest a further £12 billion in Scotland alone in the next decade. We are taking tangible action to help create a world which runs entirely on green energy, leveraging our capabilities and insights to help countries and companies in their green transformations as we accelerate the fight against climate change together. Join us on the journey at orsted.co.uk. Excellent. So welcome back to Gigawaters. Rob, I'd like to come to you first with a, with a question here. Hydrogen, is it the end source that's going to be the the main kind of draw for it that it's potential to be used as a fuel or it's potential to be used as a way of storing green energy that can then be exported overseas i think that's a really interesting question and it's something that will evolve over time in terms of that balance but certainly at this point in time it's both the beauty of renewable hydrogen and particularly versus alternatives such as gray hydrogen or, or what's known as blue hydrogen which is ccs enabled gray hydrogen is that it not only helps with that decarbonisation where the hydrogen is consumed in terms of the hard-to-abate sectors, but it also helps to uh, integrate renewables onto the system. It sort of kills two birds with one stone, if you'll uh, excuse the metaphor. You know, you are going to have to produce hydrogen for those uh, sectors that consume it today, low-carbon hydrogen for those sectors that consume it today, and you are going to have to build out lots of renewables. And by using renewable hydrogen, you get the best of both worlds in that sense. There's obviously going to be some consideration as to exactly where that balance lays. You know, you are producing hydrogen at its lowest cost when market prices are lowest or when the renewables assets are generating the most. That's usually when you'll then have a surplus of electricity on the system. And therefore, hydrogen, or frankly, any derivative beyond that, whether it's ammonia that we talked about before or e-kerosene, methanol, which are easier to store because they are more energy dense, you're then able to sort of to, to store that energy for a period of time, whether it's to export or then to be used on the in the indigenous market, which you it can't really do at scale today with electricity. Even with the developments in battery technology today, you're struggling to store gigawatt scale, you know, offshore wind, for example. And linked to that as well, we talked previously about the transport of of electricity and the transport of of hydrogen. The UK grid is constrained in certain points, and Scotland in particular has issues moving the electricity from the areas of generation to the areas of demand. The demand in the UK is broadly in the southeast of England, and the generation tends to be uh, in in the coastal areas for offshore wind and in in Scotland uh, spread across the country. And by using hydrogen and leveraging that existing infrastructure or converting it to energy vectors like ammonia that can be shipped outside of the electricity network, you avoid system upgrades and you're able to integrate those renewables in a more cost-efficient manner and and perhaps a more timely manner as well because it is quite complex and time-consuming to permit and then deploy uh, whether it's subsea cables like the bootstraps we've seen or overhead lines. Sure, and that constraint thing, I mean, that feeds largely into the kind of transmission charging and things you won't need to go very far on the energy voice website to find people having having gripes with that system 
Martin, where do you stand on hydrogen as an as an end fuel or as a as an enabler? I suppose. Yeah, Hamish, I think um, as Rob mentioned, hydrogen is going to be absolutely essential to decarbonise those sectors that we can't electrify. So heavy transport and, and shipping and, and aviation. I think synthetic fuels is an oft overlooked opportunity. Um, Rob mentioned that earlier in the podcast. I also feel that Scotland's in quite a unique position to offer a, an underground storage option for hydrogen to, to meet the variations, especially in, if you look at interseasonal demand for heat. It's much higher in winter than it is in summer in Northwest Europe. So there's a number of research projects underway at the moment, probably the most prominent of which is the University of Edinburgh's High Store Power Project, Hydrogen Storage and Porous Media. And that's looking at the potential to repurpose oil and gas reservoirs for hydrogen storage, um, which again is part of an integrated network and in incorporating the, the pipeline infrastructure and some of the existing platforms could be a really um, niche opportunity for Scotland. Sure, and that, that point on storage quickly, it seems that Hydrogen largely has a benefit over electrification in that it won't require many consumers to perhaps change their behaviours in such that it can be fed into the gas grid in a very similar way to, to natural gases currently. Is, is that perhaps another big big benefit that it has in that it kind of already feeds into the, the way in which we kind of live our lives? Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be less disruptive than electrification, maybe not sufficient in some circumstances. So I think it's going to be very much... Uh, a case-by-case approach in terms of which areas of our economy it makes most sense to use hydrogen and, and where it makes more sense to electrify. But certainly for things like dropping fuels for, for ships and trains and, and aircraft and potentially even offshore installations, I think it makes a lot of sense to look at the potential for either using pure hydrogen, a hydrogen ammonia blend, maybe ammonia, maybe a synthetic fuel, and, and that would be much less disruptive um, if you're looking at offshore platform, for example, less brownfield modifications, um, le- less capital expenditure potentially than a, an electrification option. So definitely think it's going to be, it will have a, a niche application in quite often those heavy industrial processes in particular. Sure, and there was that exciting news fairly recently that Aberdeen could be on course to be the, the world's first hydrogen or 100% hydrogen powered city. So we'll wait and see uh, wait and see if that comes off. Rob, kind of other aspects that, that green hydrogen, what other industries kind of stand to benefit inadvertently from this uh, from the emergence of this sector there are a lot of opportunities we see hydrogen consumed in heavy industry today and that will have to be decarbonized and there's an opportunity for that to be displaced with renewable hydrogen but there are existing areas where they have differing energy sources that need to be decarbonized and renewable hydrogen can play a role in that so one example would be transport so whether it's terrestrial transport where you have sort of HGVs which could switch from diesel or a similar fossil fuel power to renewable hydrogen and that would have a lot of benefit versus the counterfactual of electrification in many cases or whether it's something like marine transport where marine diesel is quite a heavy emitter and you have the opportunity to replace that with a hydrogen derived energy vector whether that's hydrogen being burnt in combustion hydrogen fuel cell or ammonia or uh, an e-fuel such as e-methanol powering those vessels. 
but there's lots of opportunity there. And then one particularly interesting example uh, that Orsted are heavily involved in is the aviation sector. So we're working with Edinburgh Airport in Scotland as part of our our work on the Scottish market to look at how we could work together to decarbonize their activities. And that's building on the partnership that we have in Copenhagen with Copenhagen Airport, SAS and Maersk and some other partners to look at that same opportunity across shipping, ground transport and aviation in Copenhagen and the greater Copenhagen region. And we see that using something like Edinburgh Airport as an anchor project driving in that decarbonisation, there'd then be other sources around the airport who could then draw that same decarbonisation benefit by using those fuels or the hydrogen. Exactly. I'd just like to move on to kind of look at what's needed to develop this market now. We've seen the contracts for difference uh, process work wonders in in offshore wind. Martin, is a similar lever needed for, for hydrogen? Absolutely. I think in the short term, we do need some sort of um, market support mechanism, and it's encouraging to see the government actively working on that at the moment. Um, I think in addition, we need to look at some early stepping stone markets. So we've seen some recent projects announced in the whiskey industry. I think that's a, a, an industry that's really suited to hydrogen. It's heavily heat dependent and um, a, a really valuable end product. I also think we need to to look at the international opportunity and um, look at where we can join our, our low cost hydrogen potential to the, the maybe higher cost early market opportunities internationally. Sure. And Rob, what do you think is needed to get the market up and running? Deployment is the very short, simple answer. You know, I I spoke previously about the sort of lessons learned that we see in the synergies between renewable energy and, and renewable hydrogen. And the reality is that today, renewable hydrogen is more expensive than the counterfactual, whether that's a fossil derived hydrogen or even CCUS enabled hydrogen. And the way we bring that cost down is learning by doing, as we did in the offshore wind sector, where we saw prices tumble over the course of the last decade through experience, standardisation and deployment. And we need to do the same thing here. And it is very positive. Scottish government's hydrogen strategy is extremely ambitious. Uh, UK government are developing policy to enable deployment of hydrogen projects. But we're in a position whereby, you know, the sooner we start building those projects, the more we'll learn, the more the supply chain will learn, and we'll be able to deploy them at lower cost with the added benefit as well that if the UK develops a first mover advantage, we'll be better placed to harvest the GVA opportunities. You know, We talked previously about whether there was an electrolyzer manufacturer located in Scotland. It's those sorts of opportunities. They will go to the markets that start deploying projects first. Sure. And we, it was point two on the government's 10-point plan, and we had the, the UK government's hydrogen strategy published in the summer as well. How useful is it to have those kind of those targets and to know that the government ambition is behind kind of your objectives? Yeah, it's, it's very helpful to have that ambition set out. Uh, and again, we've seen the benefits of that within the renewable energy sector. You know, governments set very ambitious decarbonisation targets to the electricity sector that then translated into sub targets for specific technologies. You know, if you think back to the UK, we have the 30 gigawatt target by 2030 in terms of offshore that's, you know, it's always been revised, fortunately, usually revised upwards, and we've increased that to 40 gigawatts in 2030 target now. But having that target gives the industry the signal that they have should have the confidence to invest. And that investment then brings the maturity that allows the deployment. And so it is critical. I think 
the additional pieces that are needed to go that, with that are clarity around other pieces of policy, particularly about how this funding gap is going to be bridged, which will allow the projects which are in development today to become economically viable. But yeah, it's something we definitely welcome, but it's not the only piece of the picture. Sure. Just looking at now some of the kind of challenges that are going to arise as hydrogen or renewable hydrogen comes a more established established market. Martin, what do you kind of see as being perhaps the main obstacles, I suppose, that needs perhaps overcome or tightening up? Specifically, um, you kind of, perhaps to kick us off, you mentioned safety earlier, and there's some rather fateful tales of people that have got hydrogen wrong over the years. Yeah, it's going to be absolutely crucial to involve the, the safety authorities, the health and safety executive in particular, in in the early hydrogen projects. And that's exactly what industry is doing. I think we're, we're a, a safety critical industry. It's something that's part of our, our DNA as a, a sector, in both inside oil and gas and outside. I think in addition to safety, one of the big challenges for me is the workforce. If you look at the potential numbers of jobs that could be created here, we need to make sure that we get our, our young people and our potential people who are going to move industry, move sector aware of the opportunity and look at getting a coordinated skills development programme to to um, develop that workforce. Also technology, it's, it's easy to focus on some of the early demonstration projects and it's great. We, we need that, as Rob says, to establish the market and establish confidence in the market. But in addition, I think we need to keep innovating from a technological perspective. We need to keep driving down the cost of electrolysis and um, offshore wind technology, um, particularly in the floating space. I think if you look at today's floating wind technology, it's robust, it's proven, but there's also huge potential to innovate and look at alternative substructures and foundations and more efficient cabling and mooring systems. So that's definitely an area I hope government continues to invest, as they have over the last decade, in technological innovation. Because to me, that's where we can really establish a supply chain advantage. We can look to, to get the exciting startups that are um, emerging in this space, anchored in the UK and indeed exporting, because this is going to be a global market. Sure, I'm coming to you now, Rob, on those, uh, what do you see as being the main the main challenges that need overcome as this market kind of gathers pace? Yeah, I think I think Martin's uh, summary was was excellent and, and perhaps don't have much much to add to that, to be honest. But clearly the cost is an initial hurdle that we need to get over. You know, if you ask a customer or if you ask any individual, frankly, would you take a low carbon alternative to any product? The answer would always be yes, provided, you know, it wasn't too much of an inconvenience, whether it was sort of the way in which that product was provided to them or the cost. And so, you know, we really do need to drive the cost of, of hydrogen down to get to a point where we can compete with the carbon intensive alternatives. Um, and as I say, you know, and as Martin alluded to very well there, that's a combination of driving down the renewable electricity price through continued innovation and continuing the good work that's been done across the industry over the last, frankly, 20 or so years, and in parallel, uh, innovating on the hydrogen production side. Continuing to develop electrolyzer technology, whether that's onshore or offshore, thinking about closer integration and synergies between the renewable source and the electrolyzer technology. Standardization, a lot of electrolyzers today are almost built by hand. And again, if we look at lessons learned from industries, you know, you need to scale that and get that to a point where it's almost a commodity in itself. And then uh, lastly, it's this point around deployment again, to come back to that, that getting the lessons learned, driving to that standardization, 
will get you down that cost curve and allow you to both prove the sort of efficiency of the technology, prove the safety case that, that Martin spoke about, but also get the cost down and make it a, a viable alternative at the scale that people will need to consume it to get to net zero. Sure. And I think that summation there is kind of a, a really nice ending for us for us to kind of leave on today because it's uh, it's clear that the, uh, the opportunities are there, but there's challenges too and they just need to match the two of them together. But thank you very much to Rob and to Martin for joining me for the, the second episode of Gigawaters. It was a really great chat and really exciting to hear about a lot of the work that's going on and, and will be going on in the coming years as, as things start to, to ramp up. Uh, to our listeners, if you'd like to share your thoughts about what Rob, Martin and I have discussed today, you can find us on social media or you could drop us an email at outloud at energyvoice.com. Uh, don't forget to tune into our weekly podcast episode where the team pick the bones out of the stories of the week. If you're yet to do so, please subscribe free to Energy Voice Out Loud on your podcast app of choice and listen out for more episodes of Gigawaters coming soon. I'm Hamish Penman. Thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.